Christine? Um, well, yes, my daughter's um, going back to Anchorage today. They were due to fly out on New Year's Day, but there was um, so many flight cancellations. They were rebooked until t today. So they've oh, been here great. an extra few days, so they took advantage of the opportunity to take the boys to Disneyland on Tuesday. <laughs> okay, okay. But my son and family are back in DC. They got back last Saturday with no problem. Uh -huh. Have her children here for Christmas and New Year's. They live in Alaska, right? Yeah, one's in Alaska and the other's in DC. So she spends her holidays going. spend our Christmas Day on our own. Uh, because we were coughing, so our, the one that was here said, Mom, we don't want to see you. We weren't going to go anywhere. Hi, Diane. How are you doing? Hi, Diane. Well, it's 1030. We're going to start. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Welcome to all. We have a little online contingent. I was joking here that I think people gave a Bible study for the new year. But, uh, but anyway... Saints come marching in here. They come, but we got a good, good uh, online contingent. Uh, we're at John 15, which is a shorter chapter, so you'll have to talk more today. Well, all of these chapters are read. It's it's. Uh, well, it's only when there's commentary that the words, I mean, they weren't written in the original Greek in red. This is a translator's you know, uh, device. But so whenever the, the, the writer is introducing, you get the black. But the words of Jesus in red, interesting who chose that color. Red is like, hey, really important, you know. Uh, So we're in the in these chapters um, in John. These are set in the um, just after the Last Supper and before the beginning of the Passion, and they are extended teachings that pertain to what life will be like for the disciples after Jesus goes away. So there are instructions in the Christian life for what life is like. And um, we have, John gives us three chapters of this. We, we read these um, sections from these in, um, in Eastertide. A lot of these Gospels come up for us in later Eastertide. Anyway, let's let's just jump into chapter 15 and start talking about it. 
So chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Now, before we just jump into the whole organic idea of the vine, um, we want to think a little bit about um, and talk a little bit about how this is rooted, this idea of the vine is rooted in the Old Testament. And so I I think I'd like to have you turn to a, a chapter, which is Isaiah chapter 5, which provides some backdrop for a couple of of, uh, New Testament teachings, Um, but but the idea of Israel as the vine and, and the vineyard. So I just read Isaiah chapter 5. God talking to Isaiah the prophet to to a disobedient Israel. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cut its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, does it produce, bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. And I will lay it waste, and it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will also command the clouds, and that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. passing fire Vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. So, the image in Isaiah is, is God brought a vine out of Egypt. This is the Exodus. Brought, he's, he's considering Israel a vine. He brought it out of Egypt and planted it in the promised land, his vineyard. And he planted it and expected it to take root and grow and bear fruit, which would be, in a vineyard sense, grapes. But here he, he's very clear what he says. He looks for justice, but behold, oppression. So the fruit of the vine would be justice, which is a, a common theme of the old old covenant, which is to um, order life according to the rules of the Torah, according to the guidelines of the Torah. 
That's how you care for the poor. That's how you govern relationships between people. So he looked for justice, but he found oppression. And it's interesting, the justice of the Torah is meant to um, protect people from oppression. Like I talked last Sunday about the Jubilee year. It was a matter of justice. When someone fell into debt, God said, every 50 years we're going to wipe that clean and we'll get their stuff back. When you don't do that, you get more and more accumulation and more and more oppression. So this oppression is not an abstract idea. It's a very, it's the way life goes when it's not ordered by the teachings of the Torah. So, um, you look for righteousness, behold, the cry for help. Um, and justice and righteousness, as we talked about in morning prayer for those who join us, um, those words are always together in the prophets. That's what God wants from his people. Um, doing justice, doing what is right, which means giving everyone their due as someone made in the image of God. Um, so so he, God brought the vine out of Egypt, planted it, expected it to grow and produce righteousness, judgment, a witness to God's glory in the world that would draw all nations to him. And instead, he got a vine that was diso uh, disobedient, brought forth wild grapes, didn't grow, didn't produce the fruit. Um, and so this also is the backdrop for the parable of the wicked vine dressers in Matthew's gospel, where, where, God, where the, God, the owner leases the vineyard out to people and they don't give them the produce. And so he, he takes it away from them and gives it to someone else. And that's why the, those who hear that story in Matthew's gospel are like, no, because they understand it means we're, God's taking the vineyard away from Israel. Um, so this is this that whole vine imagery of Israel as, as the vineyard then gets us back to, to John 15 where he says we'll go back to John 15 now I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser so in a certain way the point is the seed that was planted in, in the promised land, the Old Testament, the vineyard was God's people possessed of the Torah, given instruction here, go do this. And they didn't. But that law was something um, external to the people. They were guidelines for living they were supposed to follow. And what we understand from the message of the Old Testament is that that's instructive for us. Israel's failure to be faithful to the Torah, while culpable, is simply revelatory of human nature apart from God. We cannot keep, we cannot do the things God calls us to do in that state of separation from him. So the failure of the vine to bring forth fruit is what fallen humanity does in its state of separation from God. It can try, but it can't really 
it can it can bring faux justice and faux righteousness to get excited, but it can't really do it. So Jesus, God's answer was to send His Son to do on behalf of Israel and all people what fallen human nature cannot accomplish. So Jesus came, God became man, and lived a righteous life and died the righteous death for our sins and rose, and he fulfilled the righteous demands of the Torah. And he, therefore, unlocked the blessings of the covenant. And so when it, when he says, I am divine, this carries forth in the beyond the resurrection to um, the Pentecost, so I am the vine, you are the branches. So the organic, the, the place of life is Jesus, who rose from the dead. He has life. He is the vine that, that is living, and, and the true vine. And therefore, branches that are connected to him can grow and bear fruit. And this is the organic connection we have to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. We are baptized into Jesus. And this all the talk here where Jesus, he will get into this chapter two, abide in me and I in you. He who abides in me bears much fruit. Because as we live in him who is the source of life and we draw our life from him, our lives can begin to manifest the kind of things that his life manifested. Now, the one thing we have, we have to be, I want to emphasize here or highlight is that to say that we can bear fruit and we can begin to do the, what the Torah says doesn't mean we're going to do it perfectly, doesn't mean we have no more sin in our lives, um, but it means there's a life principle in us through the Holy Spirit that actually begins to, 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 to do something new. And the Christian life is a growth into the fullness of this life, which in, in other, using other horticultural analogies, will require that we, you know, pull some weeds. And then, as he says here, um, every branch in me, verse 2, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So if we think of our lives as a branch, and, and which you know, this part of us sin in that branch manifests, or or the disorder manifests something, God will cut that off. Just like if you go to the garden, you have a good tree, you say, that's a dead branch, you'll hack it off, because you don't want that dead branch sucking life from the vine that should go to the, and that's the main reason you prune things, because you have a dead branch that's still taking life. So, so the point here is not that, that, that we are, being in Christ is a living state of being, and I, I just think, like, I want to be clear that we're talking about an organic reality that doesn't mean we're perfect people, but does mean we're really connected to Jesus and are doing things in him and through him that we don't do on our own. And as we grow into this, we'll be aware of things we need to do better, 
will be aware of the things we need to confess. That's that's the whole practice of the faith, where we have you know, Advent repentance leading to Christmas celebration. We're, we're, we're trying to grow into this thing. And it's not um, a judicial thing where I'm trying to do all these things so God will see that I'm good. That's you can't do enough for God to, 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 to see that you're good. You've been given salvation, life as a gift. That's the grace. By baptism and faith in Jesus Christ, we have life. God just accepts us. Now, as we live in that life and stay connected to the vine, we're free to live in a new way. What we do doesn't earn merit. It produces fruit that bears witness to the source of the life. So, um, anyway. So, the, 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 the thrust of this chapter, therefore, is the organic nature of this life. And the idea of ongoing growth and, and confession is made clear in the sense of pruning and cutting away the branches that don't bear fruit. The verse 3. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. So he has spoken to them. He's told them who he is. They've accepted him. They've repented. And um, his word to them and their acceptance of that word makes them clean, makes them part of the true vine. Then he says in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you. So continue in this relationship with me, is what he's saying. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So what does this mean to abide in him? Make him a part of your life. How? Hmm? So prayer, we talk a lot about the, the um, somebody once said that he'd never heard me give a sermon where I didn't say life of prayer. <laughs> it's not exactly true, but it, it's a pretty, but, but the idea of a life of prayer is that um, we got in this, this metaphor helps us understand that. A life of prayer is not a life of saying prayers, not a life of a prayer time that is separated from the rest of life. Rather, it's a, it's a life lived in relationship to God that certainly has times where we focus, where we, where we um, intensify our connection through prayer. But hopefully when we leave that prayer, we're not forgetting that he's with us. We're still... You know, there's still a prayerfulness, which is an awareness of our connection to him. So to abide in him is to continue in that and remain in that relationship. And the point of fixed times of prayer and disciplines is that they help us if we, for example, you know, have the habit of the daily offices of morning prayer and evening prayer, and maybe some habit during the day of stopping for prayer, like something at noonday, like Angelus or something. Um, we're more likely to maintain a constant mindfulness. You know, we start with prayer, we go out in the day, we're distracted, and we're the, oh, and then we come back and, oh, yeah, that's right. And so to remember and to, and to stay in that place 
versus being distracted. Because what happens to us as we live is we're distracted. That's the, we can think about, in the spiritual life, we talk about the word uh, recollection, or um, which really means to, to live in the mindfulness of, of God's presence with you. The opposite of that recollection is distraction. Your, your, your mind is taken away into something else that, that makes you forget. So that rather be remembering, you're forgetting. And as you forget, you forget a couple of things. You forget, we forget a couple of things. Um, we forget sort of God's presence, but then we forget who we are in relationship to God. And in that distracted state, that's where temptation comes in. It's like, oh, there's this, yeah. And we, in the, in the state of forgetfulness, so the abide in me is, is this, what we call the life of prayer, where we, where we, by discipline, attempt to stay closely connected to him. So it's not to fall into distraction and temptation. And in the spiritual life, our temptation sources are the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is what you announced in baptism. What, what are the temptations of the world? The nature of them. Huh? Commercialism. Commercialism. I think that that's all there is. Like, it wants to. So, like, what kinds of things would the world offer us? Uh, buy this, and you'll look like this. So, yeah, so an, an appearance of something, yeah, an appearance, a desire to look a certain way. Or have. Or have, acquire wealth as, 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 a, as a goal in life. Um, so, the world offers us wealth and status and, and pleasure to some degree. It offers all those things that if you have these, this will be it. What are the, what's the temptation of the flesh? One more thing and then you'll be full. But, but, but to be, it's important, I think, because in the West, this word flesh is so caught into body and appetite that it, it really, but it, it would really be our inner, um, our fallen nature, that is, the reason that Israel couldn't fulfill the Torah and the reason we cannot, in our natural state, fulfill the righteous demands of the law is that is because we are separated from God and the nature of separation is what they just proposed, the flesh. And the desires of the flesh, so the world offers and, and the flesh says, yeah, I want that. So one is external, the world, and the other is internal, the flesh, and they meet up. So when we see, for example, Jesus in the wilderness, the devil offered him the world, all the kings of the world, you know, an appetite here, turn this into, uh, and he offered uh, him, him, um, Power and but Jesus didn't wasn't subject to the flesh, so those things weren't tempting to him. So the more we grow in the Spirit in our lives, the Christmas caller called it daily renewal in the Holy Spirit. Confirmation prayer says the same thing. Uh, 
by daily rule. The more we grow in the spirit, the more we see things as they really are, the less tempting they are. In other words, we would say, oh, yeah, that, you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an entirely separated from God's state, we might think, yeah, if I get money, I'm really happy. Or if I have that pleasure, this will be it. If I have this, it will be that. But the more we grow and we, and, we, and we experience usually with some stumbling along the way and falling into it, we gain some wisdom to say, yeah, I see that temptation, but I know if I do that, that's not going to give me what I want. And that's what Jesus natively had, awareness of, 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 of the fact that these temptations are not, are not, um, are not going to fulfill the deepest desires of the spirit. And, and so that's, that's kind of like the flesh, the fallen nature is drawn to these things. The Holy Spirit within us leads us to desire things that really fulfill us, which leads to a, a necessity of, this is the paradox, of saying no to the world, the flesh, and the devil in order to say yes to the greater things God gives to us, and in the world, so it, it's it's all in in more ordinary language. It is what we call the principle of delayed gratification, which isn't a consumer culture idea, right? Right. In our culture, it, it, you 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 get this, and you think, yeah, and, and that's why we're we're sort of. People are always grabbing a thing that, that they can make them happy and it doesn't, but they go again and it becomes an addiction where you're stuck in a pattern you can't break free of. But part of the spiritual life of abiding in Christ is learning, no, that's... So, because every no to the things that are not of God is a yes to God. And every yes to the things that are not of God is a no to God. And that's that's to abide in Christ. We have to refine our ability to say no, to say yes, and grow in the wisdom of what that looks like. So when he says to me, getting back to our our uh, our Bible, um, abide in me. As we as we abide in Christ, we are, become more aware of the things that aren't fulfilling and the things that are. And also in abiding in Christ, when we fall and stumble, we come back quicker. Like, that's why the life of prayer is not that you won't ever be caught up, won't ever maybe fall into a judgmental attitude or anger or some kind of temptation to even some other kind of sin, but then, you, but then you'll realize again, oh, and then you, you come back and you so abiding in him means continually staying connected to, to him through our prayer. I also think the abiding in him is what's very important that is is the community. And I, by this, I don't just mean like you got to be a member of the church, which I think is right, but also that you need a you need people who are doing this with you because you're not in a world where people who are doing this with you. The world, people think you're crazy. But what do you mean? What do you not? What do you mean? So, it's a hard life to live all by yourself. So that's the community. The church is a community that lives in the kingdom, 
according to these values and, and with this end goal in mind. And um, Oh, well, God, actually, Carol said, God, you know, people, all they have to do is ask and God's going to chase them. I, I think there's a way in which God does chase people. We're, we just started Epiphany today, and this is one of the themes of Epiphany, is a theme of revelation, how those who don't know come to know. And well, I you know it's 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 a mystery. I, I, we're not going to go down this road today because we get into predestination and this today. It'd be too too it'd be bridged too far. But I just want to suggest that sometimes revelations are strange and like, for example, how badly did did, did Saul, who became Saint Paul, want to? as he stormed off to Damascus to arrest the Christians. Did he choose God or did God choose him? And this is part of the idea of being God's chosen people. There's an awareness of like, yeah, I know this and others don't. And that's a gift. And we want them to. But we understand it's not just a matter of like trying to sell them an apple rather than an orange. There's a spiritual revelation that has to come to people, which is why when we're working on conversions or we desire, or we have to pray that God will open their eyes to see. Be our epistle for what, for, you know, that St. Paul says, that I make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which has been hidden, but now been made known. And there's a great mystery. I mean, I think about this in, in Epiphany. I mean, this is the manifestation of Christ to Gentiles, but it's like some dudes from Persia you know, who come a long way. It's not like thousands of Gentiles. It starts with this very peculiar and, and, and small revelation. And, and and nobody really in the world around knows about it. There was a famous um, Anglican missionary whose name was Leslie Newbigin. He wrote a book called The Open Secret. Like, it's not hidden, but somehow that to you it's been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to others in parables, it's seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. So, anyway, there's that. So, but my point about the community is we need people, and not just like, you know, I mean, the church as an entity is, is is the place. We also need connection with people in it who walk with us to help us say no to the to that which is not and yes to that and encourage us. It's very hard to to walk all by yourself. Okay. He says, um, I am the vine, verse five, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Now, if that, if that doesn't kind of challenge some of the Native American 
the, the, the ancient American, not like Indian American, but the, the natural American disposition of like, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, God helps those who themselves. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And now, I think I think that's right. I, mean, I gave a little bit of a of a sermon on this for the for the New Year uh, last Sunday, where um, it doesn't mean we're not supposed to do anything, but the proper order is we begin with grace, with our relationship. And from that relationship, we go out in that grace and strength to live. And so we always must have this understanding that the ability to, to do begins with the encounter. And if you just think about the Christian life, it's always like this. So, you know, we're, we're stuck in sin and we're saved by repentance and faith. And it's given as a gift to us. And the baptism is a, you know, illustrates this. What do we bring to the farm? Like our resume of good works or whatever? No, simply repentance and faith. Same thing when we come to the altar on Sunday. We're not bringing like, okay, see? No, it's like sin, thought, we're, we're, we're remembering again our status. But then once we do that and, and have that grace from the Spirit, then we can go out and do something. It's like here, Carol's right about that. Apart from you can do nothing, but with me you can do, you know, I think that, I mean, that with, with God all things are possible, as Jesus himself said. It just, this is the point of the disciplines of, of, of the Christian life and the prayerfulness is as we stay connected to him, we can go out and a lot can happen when we find ourselves disconnecting from the vine we're going to find ourselves starting to wither. Verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Image of judgment. What's also interesting about the image of judgment that helps us understand that it's not, the judgment is not Simply, and John brings us out very well, that it's not like we all appear before God at the end, so you did a lot of good things, you're in, you did a lot of bad things, you're out. It's you are connected to me, and therefore you have life, and your life is revealed, and you are disconnected to me, and you you, you have no life. Uh, and apart from that connection to God, we can't enter into the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he can't see the kingdom of God, can't enter into the kingdom of God. So it's what's been revealed in judgment is the is the biological reality of our spiritual connection with God or not. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. We think about that, that's pretty good, right? If you abide in Christ, his words abide in us, 
we have this power in prayer to ask for what we want and we'll get it. What does that mean? What doesn't it mean? Wrong thing. What's the wrong thing? Was, what, if our lives are, are if our lives are ordered, ordered and by by prayer, that we will more than likely desire what is in line with God's will. So as we live, if we abide in Christ and the Spirit abides in us, our very desires begin to be oriented towards the things that are really fulfill us. So the idea that that we would like abide in Christ and have our main prayer to be really rich would be something that would be that would be the indication that was our prayer would be the case we weren't really living in him we didn't really understand it and on the other hand though I think um, the more we embrace this reality of life in Christ and the more we understand what the spirit gives us is what we really desire ultimately union with God and its fullness um, the more you understand there's great power in praying for things like like what? Like strength to resist temptation, growth in virtue, growth in wisdom. For example, in James, uh, the epistle to James in chapter one says, um, if anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will give it to him. We know, for example, that it's God's will that we be filled with joy and peace. We can pray for those things. And it's remarkable how those kinds of things begin to happen, which are clearly in the will of God. Now, sometimes as we pray for growth in wisdom, in joy, in peace, in, in those positive things, God might, in answering them, point out to us the things that maybe need to happen in our lives before we actually experience that joy and peace. So, but it's an ongoing conversation. Uh, but there's power in that relational prayer of how we grow into that which God wants us to be. And, and I think at the root of this is something that gets right back to the very beginning of the Bible of trusting God. Um, do we trust? Can we work on trusting that what God wants for us is really what is best for us? Because a lot of the, the skewing of our prayer is a yes, but. Yeah, I want the will of God, but I really want this thing I want. And the surrender of of those things and the bringing of those desires into the will of God will ultimately open up new horizons of fulfillment. But it's um, I think that's how the prayer promises work out is is that we, we can ask for a lot of things in the will of God that will come. And I think come as we squander it on the lesser things. And then there's other things about, like, we have ideas about what we want. Um, I want this or that. And, you know, God might ask, you know, do you really 
understand all that it means to have all because we our our desires tend to be we tend to look at the good and miss all of the stuff that comes with it so that's why sometimes the best prayer becomes you know god help me know what i want and then give it to me because because god does know these things and it's also why assessing the horizon of prayer assessing god's answer to our prayers requires time because if you look back say at a five year period and say where am i you see you can look back and say oh yeah but like at year one of that five year period you probably were in complete frustration about what's going on complete disappointment because you didn't see how it was all going to work together but if we abide in him that is keep living in connection to him we see over time how things come together and we just go oh okay i get it we might have stuck got stuck there praying for this thing that we weren't going to get because we had no idea how the end point was going to come so these are the things things are caught up into that um if you ask what you will, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it should be done for you. It's God's will to fulfill our desire. And as our desire becomes aligned with its true end in God, then that desire, that those prayers become very fruitful. This is verse 80, says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit so you will be my disciples. Now, what is fruit here? What is the fruit he wants us to bear? Where, where did he, um, let's go back to Isaiah. What, what lack of fruit did God criticize in his Old Testament vineyard? Justice. 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 And, and so, uh, you know, the way we treat people and Jesus will highlight this to raise that to love, not just like obeying the boundaries, but also doing the positive good. Um, that we will be, um, that as we abide in him, that we are witnesses for him and agents for him in the world around us, doing the good and, 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 and bearing witness and producing the fruit of righteous behavior, as, as Galatians says, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. Doing the things that produce these things so that they will reflect on God, that's how God is glorified, that you bear fruit. That this seed is planted in us through the Holy Spirit and is cultivated by the life of prayer and community produces righteousness, justice, and, uh, and as we say in, in um, the liturgy, the good works that God's prepared for us to walk in are the fruit of that life in us. Verse 9. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So he wants us to have joy, inner sense of 
of, you know, it's, it's joy transcends happiness. Happiness in our culture tends to be a temporal state. Are you happy? Yeah. Family's good, life's good, everything's good. Joy is the understanding that, that Christ is with you in all things and the ability to rejoice in his presence even when those things aren't so good. It's an inner reality. In the world you have tribulation, Jesus will say, but, but, but he's overcome the world. And this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he, first he says, keep my commandments. But then he comes down to verse 12. This is my commandment, the chief one, that we love one another as he loved us. And that's a real challenge. Because what we don't understand is how hard we are to love. We understand how hard our neighbor is to love. They're so difficult. And they're always being, they're always being, you know, and just understand. They don't do this. They don't do that. But if you understand that God looks down and sees, you know, a world of people like us who do that, and we still come back to the altar, and this is my body which is given for you. So his, his love, the ability to seek the good through all of the stuff, that's the kind of commitment he wants us to have to others. And it's not merely a sentimental thing. So, like, for example, in just taken in the church, we talked about the, the necessity of, of, of being in the body. Probably the most important thing in the body, though, is not just is well, equally important to the positive support of people you connect with is the challenge to love those you don't. That's why they're there, because they're everywhere. It's like when someone says, you know, I'm not going to go to this church anymore because that person did this. You say, well, that person's going to be at the next church too. So you better learn how to love. What's loving mean? It might mean having a talk where you say, you know, when you do that, it, you know, love doesn't preclude honesty. Love doesn't preclude confrontation. In fact, Love requires confrontation when it's necessary. And this is kind of the discerned, like, for example, um, if I see somebody uh, doing something wrong, I have some kind of obligation to say, you know, I, I think that's in a loving way. You know, Jesus says in Matthew 18, if you see your brother, if your brother offends against you, pull him aside. Hey, this is a problem. Why? Because you don't want them to, to, to um, so sometimes we, we say, well, we're cowards. Like, no, I'm not going to talk about it because we're just going to just get along. But you're angry. And they've done something wrong. So you have resentment. And they have presumption. There's no love in that. God doesn't, that's not the way Jesus loves us. If he has something to tell us, you better believe in your prayer you're going to come one day and you're going to be talking all of a sudden you go, oh yeah, that. They take, and so, and, and when we're dealing with other people, sometimes we have, it's just like we should charge in and, and knock over the, the furniture like Jesus in the temple, but he might want to pray, how do I say this? It might take you a while to figure out how to do it. But the point is you're, you're committed to the, to the reality of love. And when you do it to the most difficult people, 
not just to the people you love, then you become, then you take on the, the, the Christ-likeness when you're trying to love the difficult. And it's a good challenge in church. Find the person that bothers you the very most. Pray for them, that person. You might just start with, you know, you don't, can't stand be around, but you might just start with that. Lord, help me with my attitude. Greater love has no one than this, verse 13, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So you can't just say, Jesus, I'm your good friend, if we don't love one another as he loved us. If we don't work at it. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing but have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father have made known to you. This is really important because it suggests that the relationship in the new covenant is way more intimate than the old. We're no, we're, you know, St. Paul calls himself a slave of God. The word servant and slave, servant sounds kind of gentrified, but Paul, the servant of God, it means a slave. But we can see ourselves as servants, slaves of God, but he means to elevate us up. We need that attitude for humility, but Jesus is calling, friend, you're, you're my friends, if you live with me and do what I want, what I ask you to do, we have a, there's a more intimate kind of, of relationship. That's if people don't feel that or... love you, but there's no connection there. When Jesus is like, I love you here, I call you my friend, but there's such a big gap. I mean, I know yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Spirit will feel that. But. Cheryl, Cheryl's bringing out a, a, a reality of the spiritual life that we all have to deal with. We could unpack more in a, in a the, the, but, but the point is, so Jesus says, um, you know, you're not servants, I call you friends. And so his words to us mean we're friends, but a lot of people in their experience of life, when the authority figure said we're friends, follow that up with some sort of manipulation or love is always passive aggressive or even abusive. So, so a lot of times we have to, people have to, in order to experience God's love fully, all of us to some love do this, have to, um, be aware of the way we've experienced disordered love in our families of origin. It, it hasn't been that way for everybody, but there's always some of it, and understanding that the way God loves us is different than that, and it, it rises above that. Because it's, it's, it's a bigger deal. I mean, I, I don't know if this resonates with anyone here, but I, I, it's a big deal in, in ministry where you say, well, you know, our pray to God. I mean, like, our Father is an intimate prayer. It really comes to me, or make Abba, Father, who art in heaven, Daddy. But if you grew up in a home where your Daddy beat you, abandoned you, that word has a, is, is loaded with a whole experience. That, that, that So this is something with, for some, with some therapy and for some spiritual direction, it's time to work through 
and this is where the, the healing of, 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 of other Christians, where people begin to love us in a new way. And I also think this is why, like when we love others the way Christ has loved us, it's also why we have to be very careful not to be overly reactive to others. Because sometimes we'll love others, they might snap at us or, or actually re- repay the good we do with something that's kind of nasty, because that's what they learn. But as we continue to love, not like put up with it, but, if, but rather than, for example, when they react that way, rather than reject them and, and belittle them, to have a conversation and explain what this meant. And so that the love of God in Christ experiences in the community becomes a healing place because it's different than the love they've experienced somewhere else. And so only in this way can this love become not merely an idea, but a kind of lived experience. That's why the communal dynamic of love is so important. And and we all need it. Not only like the hypothetical difficult person, but I mean, hopefully the community is a place where when we're at our least lovable, someone still goes, hey. Verse um, 16. For you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That means this is the very significant thing about the labor in the kingdom, that we labor in the spirit, that the fruit we produce is eternal. Laying it up for yourself treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt. To lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt. As we live and abide in Christ and practice the good works and do the things, these have an eternal dimension. This is what is revealed, carries into eternity. But when we merely live apart from in the flesh, we may get a lot of things, but it's temporal passing. And it doesn't remain. Your fruit should remain. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. That might be one of the real inexpressible joy of the resurrection is that you finally get everything you want. These things I command you that you love one another. He beats on that so much, we better really take it to heart. It means he's really serious about it. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, this is not like a, you know, a paranoia, you know, oh, no, the world hates me. Uh, it is... The reality of the more we identify with Christ in our life and prayer and work, and that will necessarily lead us to do opposition with what the world is about. We sometimes have to confront the world. This is wrong. The world won't like us. And the dynamic here is why did the world crucify the Son of God? It didn't want to hear its verdict, his verdict on its sin. And this is, goes back to the beginning. Why did Cain kill Abel? Abel was righteous, and Cain didn't want that righteous witness there pointing out that he was not. And so 
if we stand for what is right and good, there's always going to be a sense of the world not not wanting to hear it, belittling, yeah, yeah, it's stupid. You know, just like Jesus on the way to the cross, he saved others, let him save himself. You know, and and so understanding that 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 that's part of what it means to, to abide in him is to be treated by the world the way he was treated by the world. And this, I should say, for this first disciples was really serious. They were all, you know, again, 11 of them died as martyrs, and the 12th, John, spent a lot of his life in exile. So for us, we think, oh, yeah, we're gonna, someone's going to not like what I have to say. <laughs> it's, you know, it's not the same kind of thing, but, it, but, um, but it's the same uh, genre. Remember the word that I said to you, verse 20. <clears throat> A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. For all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. And kind of thinking back to, you know, like the idea of witness, to be faithful, it's not our job to make anyone believe. It's our job to be faithful in the witness. If they believe or don't believe, that's on them. Um, if I had not come and spoken to them, verse 22, they would have no sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. This is going to be ultimately the judgment on Israel because they've, they've had the opportunity. When you have the opportunity to do right, when you understand the word and reject it, you're culpable for that. That's, that's a scary thing. People often say, you know, wow, I believe, you know, how, how, how can God judge someone in the country we've never heard about? Well, let's, let's, let's let God take care of that, but you have heard about him. <laughs> so you're culpable for what you've heard. If I had not come and spoken to them, they'd have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the work which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen also hated both me and my father. And this is also part of the um, the court imagery that uh, the judicial imagery that Jesus and John has been used that, that um, when he talks about the witness, like he, when he's talking with my, my works bear witness, John bore witness, in other words, this is testimony. And if you refuse the testimony of those witnesses, then you're culpable for your refusal to accept the, the witness that God has given. This happened that the word might be fulfilled, which was written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Where does that come from? Yeah, um, Ron. Psalm 69, 4. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the... Uh...
when the helper comes, and again, we talked about the helper last time. The helper means, um, it's the Greek word paraclete, if you ever heard that word. Sometimes churches are called the holy paraclete. Or, so that's, it means that someone who comes uh, to be with us. And the idea here, when Jesus talks about the helper, it's not, I'm going to give you a little help. It's that I'm going to go away, so I won't be with you. But I'm going to send the Spirit who will be with you, and He will. He will. Um, and the difference between this will be that Jesus, His presence was external to them, but the the, the presence of the Paraclete will be internal to them. And then, um, in the presence of the Spirit within us, helps us to understand. If, if you're reading First John at morning prayer. John will say, you know, and uh, and as we know, we 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 abide in Him by the Spirit He has given us. John says in one passage, "You don't have any need for me to teach you because you have the Spirit. The Spirit teaches you all things." So the Spirit comes in the absence of Jesus and helps to understand the things that Jesus teaches. So. When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. He will also bear witness because you were with me from the beginning. So, the Spirit will testify of me to you, and then, because you have the Spirit, you also, therefore, will bear witness in the world, because you and you've been, they, they've been with him. Since they've known him from the beginning of his ministry, they can be, they are, they are, the apostles are authentic and trustworthy witnesses. And we're witnesses of what we've experienced. That's what we can, we can talk about, what we know. That's really what it means to be a witness. It's not like to memorize what somebody told you to say about Jesus is like, what do you know from your life? You've experienced something. Somehow you're you're here. Why? <laughs> what, why do you believe? That's what you can share with you. Any thoughts, questions about that? You're at our end. We'll be chapter 16 next week. Let's pray. Lord, bless us and keep us. Lord, make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us. The Lord, lift up his countenance upon us and give us peace this day and forever. Good to be with you all today. Good online contingent there. I think about a dozen. That's good. Connie, Adriana, Ruth, Diane, Elizabeth. Lynn was hiding from us. He was there too. Lena, Yuri, Christine, Rhonda, and Mimi. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I'll come back for a, a we we'll have a 50 mass and party tonight. Not coming this morning, but then. six. What's that? Oh, to say practice, yeah. You're trolling, yeah. <laughs> You're singing so much.